Open up your Bibles to Genesis 18. That's where we're going to be. Some of you know that um, Betty is in Florida this month. We drove down um, a couple weeks ago, and she stayed down there. She's helping her mom get ready to move up from her home of 70 years into a retirement community up here. And so she's, her, she'll be coming back with her mom later in this month. But Betty and I were talking while we were down there about, you know, mom is 92, you know, and I know that others of us in this room have family who are older. And, um, and, and we were talking about the changes that someone in their 90s have seen. You know, from, from being, um, you know, from being on a phone that was a party line where everyone kind of knew your business, you know, all the way to Facebook where everybody kind of knows your business, you know? Um, and from being um, on a, a phone that had multiple parts to it and it only did one thing, it called people, to being on a phone that people don't use for a phone very much anymore because it's your weather station and it's your notepad and it's your calendar and everything else. Um, from all the things like that that our mom, that your parents have seen, um, from, you know, when F- Flash Gordon was black and white, he was a black and white superhero who traveled the galaxy, and now men and women are living in the galaxy in our space station. You know, few had TV back then, and if they did, it was only black and white, and now they're watching TV on their phone, right? Um, long-distance travel is for the wealthy few, but now, you know, you can travel great distances at really affordable cost. And when you consider the fact that you're flying at 30,000 feet in the air, that's kind of really crazy, isn't it? At one time, I remember as a little boy, and, so, and I'm not 92. I feel 92 sometimes, but I'm not 92. But, you know, I can remember the first robot I, I remember was, you know, from Lost in Space. And about all he ever did was say, Danger Will Robinson. <laughs> and now you have artificial intelligence, quote-unquote, which is really artificial, and it's not really that intelligent, you know. But you now you have real kind of things that are scary, kind of like robotic. You know what I mean? By the way, have you seen the um, Saturday Night Live spoof on artificial intelligence? Artificial intelligence, it's called Alexa for old people. Yeah, I looked that up. It's pretty funny, all right? And that was just a free one. That's just a free one. You can look that up, all right? Men on the moon, living in the space, the internet, robots, nanotechnology. I don't even know what that is. Artificial organs, all mine are my sim, mine still. Cyber warfare. Um, the list goes on and on and on of the things that our parents once thought were impossible. Just a few weeks ago, the boys and I flew home from Florida, and every time I'm in a plane, every time I'm in a plane, I'm like going, is this crazy? I am 30,000 feet in the air, flying 500 miles. It will take me two and a half hours what it took me 17 to 20 hours to do earlier this week. That's just crazy. That they can keep that giant metal container of people in the air for that long and end up where they're supposed to be. The pilot laughs when I say that. It's pretty incredible stuff to think about it. In our text today, in Genesis 18, it talks about what is impossible and what isn't. And so I want you to, let's start reading in verse 1 of Genesis 18, okay? Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. 
And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from his tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by, but please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I'll bring a piece of bread and that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may go on your, since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abram hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour kneaded and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant and he pre- hurried to prepare it. And he took curds and milk and the calf which had been prepared and he placed it before them and And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. And when they said to him, where is your wife? Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, behold, in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have become old, shall I have my pleasure? my Lord being old also. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. The remaining portion of this passage is the telling of um, how these men are warning Abraham about God's plans to punish Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the remainder portion, portion of this passage, Abraham goes from, you know, to being a master and dare say a very bold negotiator. Um, we covered this portion of, the, of chapter 18 and chapter 19 earlier when we talked about Lot. We kind of captured all the story of Lot and we put all those chapters together and talked about him earlier on in the sermon series. Now, one of the things you have to do when you read this passage is you just got to say, who are these three guys? You know, verse 1 says, the Lord appeared to Abram. Verse 2 says, and there were three men. You know, they call this a theophany. A theophany meaning that it is a time when God appears in human form um, to interact with man. And so it appears, as from our text as we read through it, that God himself in human form was there along with two. Because later on, if you read the text and you go into chapter 19, two of them go to Sodom and Gomorrah. And two of them are involved in the actual punishment and the things that happened there. And so while it was the custom to offer superb hospitality at this day and time in in this culture, there appears also to be an urgency about the hospitality that Abraham is offering here. So it tends to lead more that he understood exactly who he was dealing with here. So verse 9, so the, the, the men show up. He takes care of them. He offers them hospitality. And then verse 9 reveals exactly what these guys have come for. It says here, Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, Behold, she is in a tent. 
So there's two things that they've showed up for. One is they have come to confirm the promise that had already been made to Abraham multiple times. Now they've come to confirm that promise also to Sarah. But then the other part of it, they've come to also reveal their plans for what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now in chapter 17, verse 19, we see here in 17, 19, um, but God, here it says, No, Sarah, your wife, will bear a son, and you will name him Isaac. So they had been told earlier, just, just recently even, that she's going to have a child, and there's even a name for this child. So that's already been confirmed. But just like it was with Abraham, where God confirmed that promise many times over, and until he began to finally grasp the fullness of that promise... Because you remember, early on, he says, that's right, I'm going uh, to have children, and I, and I guess my children are going to come through this servant of mine. And God said, no, you're going to have a son. And then later on, he goes, oh, so I'm going to have children. I guess my children won't come through this barren old woman. It's going to come, I guess, through Hagar, her maid. So he makes a son with her. And he goes, no, it's not that one either. It's her. It's that barren old woman that you're talking about. It's the one that you don't think can make a child. That's the very one that I want, that I'm going to make it possible for her to have a child. So he showed up, and in chapter 17, he says, Sarah's going to have a child. Now here he is in chapter 18. He says, Sarah, I know you're listening. You're going to have a child this time next year. And you notice here that it says that she laughed. Isn't that interesting? You know, have you, ever, have you ever wondered why it is that God asks questions? He's God, right? Because he already knows the answers. He already knows kind of like what's going on. But he is a good father, as we sing, and as Scripture points us to. And so as a good father, a good parent does, they ask questions. And haven't you ever, you know, everyone's done that before. You walk into a room, and there's only one person in there, and, and it's one of those things where the child has toilet paper wrapped all around their head, and toilet paper's all the room, and you walk in and say, who did this? Well, you know who did this. But there's something about giving the opportunity to the offender for self-confession that you learn a little bit more about the incident. And not only that, it lets you step into maybe a teachable moment in it. So here we are in Genesis 3. God goes for a walk in the garden. Adam, where are you? Do we not think that he already knew? We did. But Adam says, hey, um, I'm over here. But I was afraid because I was naked. So I, clothed, I, so I hid because I was naked. I was afraid. He already knew all that. But in doing that, Adam kind of reveals some of the things about himself now. He's afraid. He's ashamed. His situation has changed. So self-confession allows God to deal with the sin. So he says to her, why did you laugh? And she goes, I didn't. I didn't laugh. And he goes, ah, yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. And in other words, all he, and you know, that's all it says, the, the passage, that's all it says about it. Verse, verse 19, or verse 15, Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, and she, for she was afraid. And he says, no, but you did laugh. In other words, don't doubt. In other words, he calls out her doubt and her disbelief. 
And he does it by drawing attention to his own power and character. He does that in verse 14. In verse 14, he says, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? Genesis 18, 14. She says, I didn't laugh. And he goes, yes, you did. Yes, you did. And he, and he does that in contrast to his statement about, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? Well, obviously, Abraham and Sarah thought that there were some things too difficult for the Lord. Because at one time when there was a famine and they thought they were going to starve to death, they didn't think that God could, could produce food. And so they went down to Egypt where they thought that the Pharaoh would take care of them. And then another time when they didn't think that they could have a child of their own between the two of them, well, they had Hagar step in for Sarah and made a child with Hagar. And then later on, you're going to read this in chapter um, uh, 18, 19, 20, in that chapter 20, where they go into Gerar, another region of the area, and they're, they're afraid that Sarah's going to be taken by the king. Or, you know, and so he says, tell them you're my sister because you're beautiful. Now, right there, if you're really doing some good, solid study of your scripture and you're asking questions that are obvious, this is the question you ought to be asking about that passage. We'll get to it in a week or so. But this woman's 100 years old, and he's saying, you're pretty beautiful. Lie to them so they won't take you. I'm sorry. I've never seen a 100-year-old woman that I thought was beautiful. And yet, the situation was such that he lied to Abimelech to protect himself and his wife. Obviously, God can't protect them against a foreign king. Obviously. So he calls out her doubt, and he says, Really? You didn't laugh? You didn't doubt me? Is there anything that is too difficult for God? And she says, Well, I was afraid. Can you relate to fear? It comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. It comes from fear of the harmless things. Like spiders that can't hurt you, and yet some people are terrified of them. It comes from fear of all kinds of very real things. Sickness, injury, disease, loss of job, loss of relationship. All those things are true. So Adam was afraid, so he hid. Sarah was afraid, so she lied. Abraham was afraid, so he went to Egypt. Abraham was afraid again, so he lied to Pharaoh. Abraham was afraid again, so he lied to Abimelech. Abraham was afraid again, so he took Hagar to make a baby. Can you see yourself in the text where you have been afraid, and so you stepped in? To fix it. And that fix it is kind of in quotation marks. Can you see where you stepped in to fix it? But you see, the issue is never that things got out of hand for God. The issue is how wonderful and glorious he is. This word difficult in chapter 14, right there, it's used 71 times. The bulk of them, the mass majority of them, speak to Wonder, marvelous, 
wondrous, performing. The passage is not so much that is anything too difficult for God, because the word is really, it's in essence, what it's saying is, is there anything that's too wonderful for me? Is there anything that's so marvelous that I could not do that? Is there someone else who could do that? Is there someone else who could step in here and perform such an act of miracle or wonder? Who is it? Now, immediately when I say that, you know, you might, if you're familiar with your, your scripture, you might think of Job, where God dresses down Job and says, where were you when I did this and when I did that? No, there is none other. There is absolutely none other. Is there anything too wonderful, is there anything too marvelous that he can't do? If you're a parent, and many of you are, and some of you are younger parents, and some of you will be, but for the past 21 years, as a parent of Grant, it's been, come on, Dad, let's have a catch. Come on, Dad, let's shoot some baskets. Come on, Dad, let's go for a bike ride. Come on, let's, Dad, let's go fishing. The last couple of years, it's, come on, Dad, and let's drive across the nation. <laughs> Children always seem to be calling their parents out to play. And I think that this verse here is the reverse of that. I think it is God calling the children not out to play, but to come in and trust. I don't think that God is, it's not the situation where like God is saying, come on out and play, come on and play. I think that this passage, go back one screen for me, please, Fareed. I think that that verse right there, uh, go back one more for me, please, Fareed. I think that that verse right there, one more. I think that verse right there, he's saying, is there anything I can't do? Come on out. Come on out and trust me. Children are always beckoning the parents to get down on the ground and build something, to get out in the yard and throw something, to get in the car and drive somewhere. And here we are, the father says, come on out and trust me. Come on out and trust me. There are two reasons that I think that we don't play with God, that we don't trust God when he calls us out. At least two that I think and think of. Maybe you can think of others. One is, we don't believe that he can do what he says he can do. So we don't reply. So we don't reply. He says, that woman, she's old. She's never made a baby. She, and at her age, no one else has ever done it either. But that one she will conceive and give birth to a healthy child. And some people would go, he's just crazy. I'm not even going to pay attention to that. And they ignore it. And then they go and do it their own way. They go and find Hagar. Or they just say, it'll never happen, and they don't do anything. They don't believe that he can do what he says he wants to do, so they do it their way. Or they just accept nothing. The other reason that I think that people 
Oh, let me finish up with this to say, and that any time that we feel like that he can't do it and we go out and begin to fix it, any time that we go out and we pursue Hagar or any time we go down to Egypt or any time we do any of those things and we feel like that we have to step in and fix something that God hadn't done already, we find that our, 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 our solutions are often just like Adam's sewn together fig leaves. They are neither comfortable are adequate for the job. And so there's not a single solution that you've ever come up with in your life that was ever adequate or comfortable or that could do the job. Not one. The other reason I think that we often don't trust him is because we don't, want he ha- we don't want what he has to offer. I have a very dear friend that deeply wanted to be married. And they felt like that God was saying, not yet. And finally they decided, well, I think it's time. And so now, 35 years later, they're incredibly unhappy have separate lives almost totally, even though they're still married. My friend didn't want to wait on God, didn't want what he had to offer, so they went out and made their own solution. And their own solution has turned out to be fig leaves. Really bad fig leaves. We don't want what God has to offer, so we decide to do something differently. We decide not to take him up on his offer. We don't want the expense of it. In other words, what it will cost us. So God says, no, you're not to be married yet. And so we go, wait a minute, I don't want to be single. That that singleness is going to cost me relationship, so I am going to get married, whether you like it or not. So I'm going to go out and find me some fig leaves and just marry them. People say, you know what? I hate this job. I hate this job. I can't stay here another time, another day, another minute. And God says, you need to just sit right still. And so you jump out of the frying pan and right in the fire. Because you don't like what God has to offer. And so here we are, we sit here and we make mud pies while the chef of the universe is inviting us into the most magnificent banquet ever imagined. And when he invites us in, he says, come on in, come in, and I have things you never dreamed of. I have good stuff for you. I have real food. You say, but I like my mud pies. I'm comfortable here. This is what I want. And we let, pay attention to this, We let our best get in the way of God's best. And there's really no comparison between the two. Abraham's best was his servant, and God said, no, I have a child for you. So Abraham thought he'd have a child with Hagar, and God said, no, I've got a child for you, and it's going to be with Sarah. It took years for Abraham to grow in his faith to be able to grasp what God had for him. And that's exactly where some of us are today. 
we are growing, I dare say most of us, we are growing in our understanding of how God wants to work in our life. And we keep charging down these streets on this, you know, here we are going, and God says, I want you to go straight. And you go, I don't know, it just looks like a really long way. I'm going to turn here, and it's a cul-de-sac, it's a dead end. And you go, well, that wasn't it. And you go back out to the main road again. You go down for a year, you go down for a mile, you go down for two years, five miles, ten years. And then you go, this just isn't getting us anywhere, God. This, it's still not happening. So you go down another rabbit trail. You go down another turn. You take a fork in the road and you find out that again, it's another dead end. And you go, well, that didn't work. The only thing left at, this, at the end of this road is Hagar. And that's not what you promised. You turn around, back on the main road, back over again. And so now for years and years and years, Abraham has been going down this road and trying to figure out where God's leading. And all along the way, he keeps trying to fix it and get to the destination faster. God's promised Isaac, and Abraham keeps trying to forge his own path to getting there. Through a servant, through Hagar, whatever it may be. Are you not in a very similar place yourself? where you keep going down dead-end roads and cul-de-sacs and finding yourself like going, this just isn't what I thought it would be. And you're going and turning around, getting back on the main road. Well, the beauty of it is, is that every time you get back on that main road, the Lord is there to meet you. Not to condemn you, not to chastise you, Not to beat you up, but to say, "Hmm, well, good to see you back. Let's dust you off. You're all forgiven. Let's move ahead. Same path, same destination, me and you. And you start off again. In writing about God's plans, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2.9, he wrote this, he said, But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. So we look around us only to see the Red Sea. Here we are, the children of Israel in Exodus, and they're trying to escape Pharaoh, and they've come to a place where all they see is the Red Sea. There's no escape. But that's all they see. But when God looks at it, he sees a dry bed with walls of water on all sides that allows for the escape of his people. And this is where it matters. Man knows in his heart that he has a sin problem. And he looks around and all he sees is the stench of his sin, the smell of death, and everything that comes with it when we try and make religion. Candles, idols, sacrifices of animals, even their own babies. And man says, how can I fix this guilt of my own heart? How can I fix the shame that I feel? And God's answer just says, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We look around us and we see no escape. We, see, we feel like we're left alone. We feel like we haven't heard from him in a long time. 
We feel like we don't know what his thoughts are, what his plans are. And so we try and fix it ourselves. We try and forge our own way. And that never works. If you're here today and you're still trying to figure yourself out of your own sin problem, if you're still trying to deal with the, the, the guilt or the shame that you experience on a regular daily basis and you've never been able to get rid of that and figure that out, that's because you can't. Because God's done that for you in the death of Christ on the cross. And his death is the payment for your sin. And so for the way, the, the way for you to do it the way God's provided for is to trust him for the forgiveness of your sin instead of trying to do it yourself. With man, it's impossible to deal with our sin. It's impossible to please him by our efforts. With us, for those of you who know the Lord and for those of you who are working hard to try and follow him, it is impossible for you to please him and to follow him in your own power. But what it means is for you to have a daily dependence upon him, to listen to where he's leading you, to listen to what he's saying to your heart, and in obedience, responding to that in such a way that he begins to get to shape you, inform you, and knock off the edges that are so problematic. There's no way for you to be able to fix yourself. There's no way for you to be able to, to do it. And there's a matter of fact, some of us are like going, but God can't fix my problem. God can't fix my problem. Then I would venture to say that you are very happy with your fig leaves and the situation you're in. Because his word says otherwise. And you know what it is? Is that we in our discipleship, we in our, in our, our path of following him, are learning how to believe what he says is more true than to believe what I think is true. And so he leads us down a path of constantly revealing to ourselves the lies we believe versus the truth of who he is. He says, is there anything that's too difficult for me? Is there anything that I can't do? And our discipleship is this growing, coming to an understanding that that is true, that there is nothing that he can't do. And I'm learning, and my discipleship, my daily walk is learning to trust that truth, that truth, more than what I think and feel. Let's close. Father, this morning, I want to thank you that your word is true. Man, I need it. Um, I desperately need it. And so I just ask that you would continue um, to love us the way you do. So grateful for it. So grateful that there is nothing that is too difficult for you, too wonderful for you, and that you love us with such a great, sacrificial, forgiving love. And that you're so patient with us as we learn to trust you with the issues of our life and allowing you to fix them in great and glorious and wonderful ways instead of with our terrible, inadequate ways. Lord, I need you so desperately.
And I'm so grateful that you put me in places where I have to choose to believe what you've said is true or to continue to believe the lies that I believe. Thank you that you put me in those places because those places are telling me that you love me and you want to see me change. And I'm really grateful for that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.